Peter Starr is a motorcycle traveler, acclaimed film producer, motorcycle film producer, writer, and a cancer survivor. And I think we probably had, you know, people who've done all of these things on the show before over the years, but I'm quite certain you've not heard a story like Peter's. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Simon Austin Benz. Simon Pavey. Graham Field. Helga Pedro. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Carl Parker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Jarvis. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Before we get started, I want to thank these fine companies that helped get this episode out today. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters. CyclePump.com. When you listen to Peter Starr speak, you can't help but feel his positive energy. He's done so much in his lifetime, including traveling, producing and directing over 40 television specials on motorcycling and motorsports. He's made two documentary feature films, many television commercials and, and industrial films. Peter's done a lot of firsts, and, and he is considered one of the pioneers of filming and televising motorcycle sports in the United States. He's an award-winning filmmaker. He's also written all kinds of articles for many popular magazines, and he's the author of two coffee table books. Now, Peter has ridden as a stunt rider in some major films that you've probably seen. You're going to hear about that coming up, and over 100 television commercials. He also designed and built a motorcycle camera bike that's used in the movie industry. He was inducted into the Trailblazers Hall of Fame in 2011 and the AMA Hall of Fame in 2017. Okay, my name is Peter Starr. I'm from Coventry in England. And uh, at the moment, I do two things. I run a foundation for uh, helping men with prostate cancer. And I've been doing that now for close to 16 years. And I'm a 16-year prostate cancer survivor without conventional treatment. And I take natural health very seriously. And the other part of my life is dealing with uh, making films about motorcycling which um, happened, started in 1973 and uh, continues somewhat to this day, although the market has dried up considerably compared to what it used to be. Peter, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. You have been in the industry a very long time. Is it safe to call you an old timer? Yes, I think so. I don't take offense to it. <laughs> well, that's that's where I was going with it. Let's start off with with first of all, um, who is Graham William Wallace? Oh God! <laughs> well, it's a long story, and I'm writing a book about that actually. Um, and it's it, it. The book is called "My Life as Peter Starr" by Graham William Wallace. <laughs> I was I was born Graham William Wallace, and that's how I was through my career in England in motorcycle racing and my tenure at Triumph Motorcycles in '63 '64. And um, 
Then in 65, I came to America originally to race at Daytona. And um, I met up with a disc jockey in a bar uh, from WPDQ Radio in Jacksonville, Florida. And I had a very thick English accent there, much thicker than it is today. And uh, if you can imagine working class in the center of England, you know, it's uh, not quite Birmingham Brummie, but pretty close. You know? And um, he said, wow, I'd love to put you on the radio, because with all the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and all the British bands were coming over and and so he took me to the radio station, did an interview, and the phones just lit up like gangbusters. And he called in his boss and um, and he said, you know, we've got to do something with this. So they offered me a job and they taught me to be a, an American disc jockey. And I did this whole English show. So you, and then, you, you get a job as a DJ just because of your yeah, accent. That's all. That's all. <laughs> and, and to be quite honest... Uh, I would say things then. They would assume things, and I wouldn't. I would not disassume them of their thoughts. In other words, they would say, "Do you know the Peter Noon, Herman's Hermits?" And I go, "Like, of course, you know." And they, and, <laughs> so you're, and I, you're without building a whole direct, persona there with just just accepting ideas. Exactly, and. Um, there's a lot of stories about that because I eventually met up with Peter Noon and Mick Jagger and some of these others and became friends. I'm still friends with Peter Noon and um, and some others like Pete Townsend of The Who and so on. Uh, we still st sort of stay in touch, uh, not very often, but um, uh, but we do. And But at that time, the English thing was absolutely huge. Well, I basically dropped all ideas of racing in America at that point because I was being paid to not risk my life. And I was being paid more than I was making as a, as a, as a motorcycle racer. Mm -hmm. And, um, and all of a sudden being English, you were, you were in demand. And if you can imagine 1965 and, um, th this particular radio station was part of a group and they shipped me around from uh, Jacksonville, Florida to Raleigh, North Carolina, to Daytona beach, to Miami, to Tampa. And then they found me an agent, and uh, the agent uh, was going to book me like in two-week gigs across America to sell this English thing. And I got an offer from San Antonio in Texas, and I said, terrific. And so off I went to San Antonio. When I got there, the first thing they said is, we don't know how to tell you this, but we don't like your name. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so anyway, cut logs to I'm never you understand. I'm 22 years old, full of piss and vinegar, you know. And okay, so you don't like my name. What do you want to do? Well, we want to call you Peter Starr. And I said, okay, that's good. And so I started a, a, my gig at uh, KONO in San Antonio, and it was a huge, huge success. I can't even imagine anybody on radio today. And I'll give you an example. First of all, it wasn't. Um, the choices that we have today. And of course there wasn't cable and all the other stuff, but the guy on the radio station before me, Woody Roberts, he got, he had a third of all the people listening to radio in his time slot was listening to him. I had a half. In other words, one out of every two people listening to the radio between six and nine at night on KONO was listening to me. Wow. Which was uh, unheard of. And it had nothing to do with talent. All it had to do was this mass English thing going on. And I was part of it. I mean, uh, that was the reality of it. And uh, I stayed there for a while. I got a, a gig in Vancouver, BC, and I went up to there. And I stayed in Vancouver for four years. And then that's where I got back into motorcycling and doing some enduro riding and stuff like that. And, um, and then I eventually came down to California, stayed in the uh, record production business uh, for four years. And then in 1973, got an opportunity to make a film called The Bad Rock, which is about the ISDT qualifier in Pendleton, Oregon. 
And that started an entirely new career that lasted well over 20 years. And, um, and, and you it took was Peter Starr with you. Well, except for two, two on two occasions, um, I produced an album with a flute player called Tim Weisberg at A&M and the uh, marketing director of A&M records. A&M stands for Herbert and Marcy. Um, um, Herb Alpert, that's it. Let me get it right. Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss. But anyway, the, the marketing director says, I don't like this Peter Starr character. I want to go with Graham William Wallace. So the, if you look at a, Tim Weisberg's first album at A&M, it says produced by Graham William Wallace. But the problem has been, and it, it is to this day, People will return my phone calls as Peter Starr. They do not return them as Graham Wallace because I have no reputation. You know? <laughs> so is, I, finally, I finally gave up. You know? Gave up and, and kept... I've always wondered about these people who, who change their names for whatever reason and what it's like to go through life. I mean, when you, when you have to sign for something, you're signing as Graham Wallace. Yes. But when, you, when someone calls you, I mean, do you even answer to Graham? Uh, only, only the people that know, but, and so few do. I mean, mainly if people call me by Graham, it's someone that's very, very close to me or my family, you know, mm. um, because I've never been introduced to that. And it's part of why I, I wrote in my adventure to Scotland to when I rode around Scotland on the trail of Braveheart was because Braveheart was William Wallace. And, uh, you know, I was not named after him. I'll say that up front. But to carry that name, Graham William Wallace, it was a very Scottish name. And um, that's why I sort of, uh, uh, you know, sort of set it at the, at the top of the article I wrote for Cycle World on it was, this is my real name and this is why I went to Scotland, you know. When, um, with, with Peter Starr, with going around with, with that name at 20, 21, you know, 25, whatever, I guess it was, it was no big deal for you. I mean, you just took it on and ran with it. Yeah. I mean, it was it was like um, at the time. I, now I look back, and it was like being a character in a movie. Um, I didn't think of it as that at that time. I was that character. I, everything I lived was that character because that's what people knew me as. I was promoted on the radio as that. I mean, even when we entered um, Enduros up in, uh, out of Canada, I rode um, bikes that were loaned to me by um, Trevor Dealey, who was a big dealership in uh, in Vancouver at the time. Um, the entry was Peter Starr because that's what they knew me as from the radio. So I, I, di I didn't even get into it as being Graham Wallace in those days. It's only very recently that it's got to sort of come back, you know. And bikes have, have been in your life for how long? Oh, boy, since I was 14, basically. Um, motorcycling in England, I grew up after the war, and we were, we were a working-class family, quite poor, and... Um, you know, I had a bicycle, but uh, there was no way that my parents would have could have afforded to, let alone would have got me on a motorcycle. And it wasn't until I actually started work and earning my own money that I actually got a motorcycle. But in my grammar school, there was an art teacher called Bob Gallen. And um, Bob Gallen was uh, an interesting fellow in himself. He had a very long beard. He, he looked what we would consider to be sort of hippie-ish. And he was the art teacher. And uh, he used to race a 350 BSA Gold Star road racer on weekends. And on Friday afternoon, when there was a race that weekend, he would come to school on a, riding a 16H Norton with a flatbed sidecar with his race motorcycle strapped onto the sidecar. And then after school was out on a Friday afternoon, he'd be off to the races. So I got exposed to this the minute I got into, um, into like 14 years old uh, when I got his class at the school I was going to. And I was 
I instantly looked in this motorcycle, and I, I still think to this day a Clubman Goldstar is one of the prettiest bikes ever made. And uh, that stems from when I was 14 years old. When you're in North America and you, and you said you, you got the job as a DJ, how do you go from DJ to music production to movies? Um, by learning and watching what other people do, I think, more than anything, and saying, I want to do that. And then you said about learning how to do it. When I did my first film myself, um, it was The Bad Rock in 1973, uh, I'd actually been involved in a film production at King Screen Productions in Seattle uh, in 1968, and although I was listed as the, uh, quote, producer, um, I didn't do very much. I just watched and learned, and um, that was my schooling, if you like, that prepared me for what I did in 73 with the Bad Rock. And many of the people I worked with in Seattle in 68 on this uh, film I did for King Screen Productions um, were the cameramen. I used the same people. Uh, in Pendleton, Oregon, to, uh, because by that time I, I thought I knew what I was doing, but I hadn't actually done it on my own before. I hadn't been totally responsible. Now I had to be responsible, so I hired the best people to do the jobs I didn't know how to do. And then over the productions I had after that, which is going through 74, 75, 76, I took on more and more responsibility as I learned the things and eventually did every job that was possible to do within a film production just so I knew what it was. didn't mean to say I was going to go forward and do that job, but it meant is then I had a better communication base to talk to the people that I was hiring. And I could communicate better my thoughts and ideas, and they could communicate better to me what the issues were in doing that. So, But it was 1968, um, King Screen Productions in Seattle that started my interest in, in film. And, and I was still doing a disc jockey gig at the time. And... Um, and then I didn't really get any more interested in film until I had this opportunity in 73, thanks to Hodaka Motorcycles and Pennzoil, if I can say that, you know. So you're working as a DJ and starting to get into making movies, I guess. Is, is, is working as a DJ sort of opening doors for you? I mean, other than the fact that you're, you're obviously wildly popular at that point, you're meeting celebrities? Um, in the music business, yes. Not outside of it. I mean... Um, uh, I did a documentary, a radio documentary back in 1967-68 called The Consciousness of Youth. And it was based on my experiences at the Monterey Pop Festival. I don't know whether you're aware of the Monterey Pop Festival in 67. But it was pretty much the first of the big music gatherings. And um, in that festival, I not only hosted a show for CBC in Canada called Enterprise, um, it was about the Monterey Festival, but I got to meet a lot of people there from Jimi Hendrix and Tiny Tim and Paul Simon and Keith Moon and uh, Pete Townsend and I mean, just a lot of people that we interviewed for that show. And, um, and I've stayed in touch with quite a few of them. And, and later on, I interviewed Paul McCartney, Eric Burden, um, Clapton, um, a lot of mainly English stars and um that came together as this seven-hour documentary uh, called The Consciousness of Youth and dealt very much with the social significance of what was happening in the music business at that time. And um, since then, that allowed me to meet a lot of other people that were also around in that era, like Grace Slick and uh, Steve Miller and uh, Country Joe, you know, Country Joe and the Fish and people like that, which I, whom I met later, um, not at that time. So, yes, it was a, a good opening for music celebrities and um, rock bands and so on, but nothing outside of that. Uh, I, in fact, I, I, the only time I started to meet like movie stars, if you like, was when I became a stunt writer 
in the 90s. And I worked with uh, you know people like Mel, uh, Mel Gibson and Nick Nolte and people like that who were the stars of the films that I was doing stunt work for. And um, that, but that's a whole different ball game. This had nothing very much to do with what I was doing before that. Okay, so now you're you're getting a little head here because I didn't know about the stunt thing, but but yeah. I'm still interested in getting into the the movie part of it. Now you started making movies for motorcycles. How did that happen? Um, I was at A and M Records and we had a song called "Dirt Riding Man," and uh, the head of publishing said, you know, we should try and sell this to a motorcycle company. And, um, I, and he knew that I was into motorcycles. And so uh, he said, why don't you have a crack at you know, go to Kawasaki and some of these others, which I did and got turned down by everybody. But uh, I did call a guy called Marv Foster at Hodaka Motorcycles in Oregon. And Marv said, that's really interesting. He said, well, you know, let's talk about that some more. And um, I was going to drive back to Canada. So I drove back to Canada, to Vancouver via Pendleton and sat down with Marv and went to the Hodaka facility. And at the end of the day, he said, you know, I really don't want to do this music thing. He said, in reality, he said, but we need to make a movie called The Bad Rock about the ISDT two-day qualifier that was being held in the Blue Mountains there. And, um, and I said, I can do that. <laughs> and... Um, and you so laugh anyway, because you, you, looking back, you realize just almost how ridiculous it is. Yes, uh, and uh, and I know Marv Foster to this day. We've we've been very good friends and still are. And every year I go back to Pendleton for what they call Hodaka days, um, and I have a wonderful time with those people. But at that time, um, I thought, okay. And he said, well, how much is it going to cost? And I sort of sat down, thought for a minute, and said, twelve thousand five hundred dollars. And he said, okay, we'll put up half of that. You go back and get another sponsor. So I come back to LA and I meet with um, the head of Pennzoil. And it was, a, it was a cold meeting. I just called him up and, in the, and his name was Fred Williams. And he said, well, come down and see me. So I went down to the Pennzoil headquarters and I sat down in front of him. And um, he said, well, tell me what you want to do. And I told him, he said, hmm, what's your budget? I said, 12500 He said, that's not enough. I said, really? <laughs> he said, yeah. He said, I think you, you need to up it at least two, $3,000. I said, okay. He said, I'll, I'll go for half of the, of the upper budget. And now go back to Hodaka and get them to, to put in the rest, which is a couple of grand, and, and, which I did, and they did. So we had enough money to make the film. And um, when I got back to L.A. Uh, with the film in hand, it was all edited in Seattle, put together in Seattle. And I got back to L.A. where I was actually living at the time. And we had to get it on television. That was part of the deal. So I then had to troop around the TV stations. And finally, Channel 11 down here said, I like it. We'll run it. And they ran it at Sunday night at 9 o'clock in the evening. It doubled their normal ratings. Mm-hmm. And the guy – and the, but I still had to raise money to do what they call barter syndication, which was the deal in those days. You print up 20 copies of the film and you bicycle them around the country station to station. And the station plays the, the film, including your own commercials, Pennzoil, Hodaka, uh, and in exchange, you know, you, they, they give you the commercial time, you give them the movie. It's, it's a barter deal. Right. But we were still short about seven grand on the budget to do the distribution. So I had to call other sponsors and I called uh, what was then called Datsun. If you remember Datsun, yeah. it's Nissan, Nissan today. And uh, I got through to the marketing manager, Mayfield Marshall, and he said, come on down and talk to me. He said, I saw that film on TV last night. He said, come on down and talk to me. So I went down and talked to him, and he'd watched the film on Channel 11. 
and um, I walked out of there with a contract for eight thousand dollars to pay for to pay for the distribution. Wow. And that was the that was the start of my career. And once you got one under your belt that people like that was on television, people could refer to it. Then you start talking to other people like the Hondas of the world, and uh, and that's how the career developed. And in seventy four, uh, I made Bad Rock in seventy three and seventy four. I made the Marty Smith film, the Roger DeCosta film, and the Ontario Motor Speedway Road Race uh, all in one year. And then that one, I did a, a big movie in 75 called The All-American Race. And then 76, um, I, I did several films and we started the production for Take It to the Limit in uh, 76. Took me three and a half years to complete it. And, and Take It to the Limit, that's the, your, that's sort of your big picture. Yes, that's the um, that that's a full feature, Dolby Stereo Sound, major soundtrack with Jean Jean Luc Ponty, Tangerine Dream, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, Arlo Guthrie. Uh, it was a platinum album soundtrack, and um, and there's a lot of firsts in that movie, a lot. And um, that, quite honestly, I thought that was going to launch me into the stratosphere in terms of making movies, but it didn't, unfortunately, at all. And uh, uh, life was exactly the struggle after Take It to the Limit as it was before. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, you would think that yeah. Yeah, you'd think you'd be instantly recognized and that somebody would be dropping a project at your feet. It, that, I, that's, that was the attitude I had at the time. And uh, I fully thought that would, that would be the way it was going to be, but it didn't happen. And then um, we were into the distribution of the film and it was doing quite well. And the distribution company literally pocketed the money and ran. Oh. And uh, that was 1982. Uh, film came out in 1980, and we were left stone broke, um, barely enough money to do anything. And I managed to uh, get a lawyer to uh, to take the case, and we ended up suing the company. We got the rights to the film back in four years later, but we didn't get any money uh, because all the money that was available at that time went to pay off the lawyers. So here I am sitting on a film that was five years old that nobody wanted. It's five years old film in the, in those days. Now it's a bit different. It's a classic now. It's 40 years later. And um, people go, wow, I remember that Kenny Roberts scene from the Indy Mile or I remember the Mike Harewood scene. And so the older generation of motorcyclists today are my audience for a rerun of Take It to the Limit as soon as we can get over this virus thing that's going around, you know. It's, uh, it's kind of shut down everything. But... Um, now it's a film that's in, is desirable, much more so than it was 40 years ago. What was the, the film about, Take It to the Limit? Mainly it was about um, selecting people that were at the top of their game that lived their life taking it to the limit. Roger DeCosta, Kenny Roberts, Mike Harewood, Barry Sheen, Stevie Baker, um, Marty Smith, I mean, and doing pieces about what they did, who they were, how they did what they did pretty much. And um, it became more of a music-driven documentary than anything else because of the, the weight of the music that we managed to negotiate to put in the film. But essentially, we just filmed these guys doing what they were doing, made commentary about it, had them talk a little bit, but it was mainly music-driven. It was an image music-driven film. And you sort of, it's like sit back and experience it. In fact, we even called it an experiential film in the advertising materials we put out at that time. And we just said to people, just sit back, watch, listen, and we'll take you on a journey. And um, that was the sales pitch at the time, and it seemed to work. You know? Now I tell people, I'm going to take you back 40 years in time. 
Which is always nice as you get older, you, you tend to get a little nostalgic, don't you? Looking back and what it was like when in, in those days, back in the day. I, I do. And, um, and I won't, I, I do admit that I enjoy it. Um, because it was a magical time for me and for a lot of other people as well. But I mean, I can see the magic that was put in front of me at that time. And it's nice to enjoy it. What I try not to do is wallow in it because I'm, I've still got things I want to do. And if I wallow in the past, I'm not going to get done the things I still want to do. And um, unfortunately, I say with this virus thing, it stopped a lot of things. It stopped book sales. It stopped uh, my personal appearances at dealerships. It stopped a lot of the things that I was getting income from um, in, in the level that I need to do. And I can't wait for this to, to things to get back to normal, to get my life back in uh, going again and getting moving on to the next project, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the most bizarre thing that, that's ever happened, I think, for most of us anyway. Um, yeah. To the, the, the total shutdown. It's, yeah. I've been doing outdoor stuff since I was a kid. And um, I've tried all kinds of outdoor gear. Not very often I get something that like really bowls me over. Pearly's Possum Socks bowl me over. They have since the start. Um, I think I've said this story before, but when Pearly's first contacted me and said, do I want to try them out? It was like, yeah, okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll try them out. But when I got them, it was like, wow, these things are amazing. And they really are. I mean, I wear them through the winter, of course, and, and through the cooler weather, but I also wear them in the summertime. See, Pearly's Possum Socks are made with them uh, two kinds of material. They're made with possum fur and they're made with merino wool. Now, merino wool already has a reputation in the outdoor industry as being amazing stuff. Possum fur, that's new to me. And the combination of these two make it so, like uh, merino wool tends to, I find a lot of times it's, it's thin in the in the capacities that I get it in. But this is a fluffy sock that is really comfortable. Um, it absorbs moisture. It doesn't stink. It's got all the qualities we want for a motorcycle sock. But you won't just, I, I guarantee, you're not just going to get them, well, again, I'm not going to guarantee, but you're not just going to get them and use them on your bike. You're going to find you're going to ride them, use them riding your bicycle and even going outside in the cold. They're amazing. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com. I've made them the official sock of Adventure Rider Radio. We've never done anything like that before, and that's not because they're advertising. That's just because I like them so much. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com is the website, and make sure when you go there, tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com. You know, if I was to get a new bike right now, any bike at any time, there's two things I'd do. One would be the tires for sure. Um, that's something I would always do, change the tires because they generally don't come with a very aggressive tire. That's more my style. But the other thing is I would change the foot pegs because stock foot pegs are, well, they're just not that good <laughs> what it comes down to. It's so important, the foot pegs. That, that is your connection, in particular when you stand to the motorcycle. It's what gives you control. It's what gives you leverage. The stock ones tend to be too small and they're not designed well. And you, you'll only know this if you've actually done it before. If you've taken your bike, taken those stock pegs off and replaced it with a quality set like IMS and then stand up on the bike and feel what you've got. You've got a connection between your foot and the peg that is paramount. And that is so important to riding better. So it'll, it'll actually make you a better rider. Anyway, have a look at IMS products. They've been uh, making stuff since 1976. This is a company that's been around a long time. Racers all know IMS um, because of their quality. They have a full full uh, line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs. Actually, they've got all kinds of foot pegs and a bunch of other stuff as well. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, you're even inquiring, please throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. Have you always been 
sort of ambitious? Oh, I'm not sure I like that word so much. <laughs> Most um, people don't, but I mean, yeah. okay, like, what's another? How would you describe yourself, your personality? Uh, driven, I think. Driven. Okay. Um, I'm always doing something. It, it, I, I'm always doing something. I rarely sit down and do nothing. Um, if I'm sitting down and I'm watching a movie that I, I, I really want to see or I'm reading a book that I really want to read, um, other than that, I'm, I'm doing something. Uh, I can't sit down for very long. I mean, um, it's just not in my nature. And even if it's only just going out for a bike ride, you know, motorcycle ride, I'll do something. And so I've always been that way. That's what and I've always, right from being a kid. That, that's not something that you've got by doing a whole bunch of projects and being on the go all the time. Well, of course, having that kind of drive allows you to do those things. Um, but I think the, the, I think it came from my father, to be quite honest. Um, my father, uh, you know, obviously was in the war, World War II. And Coventry, the town where I lived in, was bombed beyond recognition. It was, the Blitz of Coventry in 1941 was, it just devastated the place. And um, so I grew up having to do things. Uh, we weren't allowed to sit down. I mean, if, if I wasn't going down to the gas works to get um, what we call coke, which is like a coal derivative to bring home to burn in the fire... Uh, I was digging in the garden because uh, we grew our own vegetables and things like that. So there was always something to do. And I was always doing something. And that's never stopped. How do you end up a stunt rider? <laughs> um, in 1980, I built a bike. Um, it was based on Freddie Spencer's number two race bike, a Daytona. And we built it around having cameras. These are film cameras now. These aren't these little GoPro uh, you know, video cameras. These were full, full on, you know, 20 pound film cameras. And we built the chassis to carry these cameras. And I made the film at Daytona called Fast Freddy about Freddie Spencer. And that was my first camera bike uh, that I built. There was one other that Dan Gurney built for me the year before that we ran at Laguna Seca for another film that I did. So when you, when but, you say camera bike, you're, you're talking about a bike that you're going to ride with your cameras mounted on it to film someone else. Correct. Right. And, and at Daytona, the bike, um, we couldn't run in the race, but in, we ran it in practice and they gave us extra track time uh, to do what we needed to do. And Roberto Pietri rode the camera bike and we were filming Freddie Spencer and it, it went very well. And that was the first thing we did in the year before that. We built a bike with Dennis Smith, who owned the bike and Dan Gurney, the, the, the famous car racer. Uh, had a workshop down in Orange County and he actually, his company built the mounts for me and we ran that bike in the Laguna Seca National Race. It was the first time the AMA had ever allowed anybody to run a film camera actually in a race. And we hired David Emdy to ride it. And uh, what he would do is, because we'd have to change the film magazine about every 10 or 11 laps, he would do 10 laps, pull into the pits, We'd change the magazine. We'd hold him back until the leaders came back around on the next lap, then let him out so he could mix it again with the leaders. He's, he was a world-class racer. And uh, so, I mean, it, but it was really interesting because we, we only had film in those days. Nobody was shooting video. I mean, it just didn't exist. And uh, these are some of the things we had to do. And all the mounts we built were all damped to take care of the vibration and stuff like that. It was quite complex. Well, the way I got into the, the stunt riding was in the, the, I built several bikes during the 80s for films that I was doing. And then, in, um, I think it was 1990, it might have been 91, they were making a film called Lethal Weapon 3. 
And one of the uh, stunt coordinators on that film knew about me, and he called me up and says, do you still have your camera bike? And at that time, I had a, a Goldwing that was very, very stable and, and could carry just about any size camera you wanted to put on it, either front or back. Uh, and we had a steady cam system for it. It was um, quite remarkable for its time. And I said, yes, I, I still have it. And he said, how would you like to get involved in a real movie? You know, uh, thank you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> His exact words, not mine. And uh, I said, sure, you know. And and I said, do I get paid? He said, yeah, absolutely. And so um, I showed up with the bike at the, the scenes where they were shooting Lethal Weapon 3 on the freeway in West L.A., and I got 10 days' work out of it, and it paid very well. And um, that was what they called my T Taft-Hartley performance because you have to be in the uh, Screen Actors Guild to do this sort of work, and they give you one shot, and then you've got to join. Um, and the, 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 the first shot is called the Taft-Hartley, and that was my Taft-Hartley. And the very next thing I had to do, I had to join Screen Actors Guild. And um, so the next thing I got was a commercial, and uh, that's how I joined the Screen Actors Guild. So you're riding your bike uh, doing a stunt or you're riding your bike with cameras on it? Uh, but they were both. I mean, oh, both. Uh, both the one, uh, what we do for the Lethal Weapon 3 was I was riding the bike with the cameras on it. But other times um, I've done things, stunt work with cameras on the bike. But we were at, I did a Coca-Cola commercial one time that was, uh, uh, we did in West LA on a, a what used to be um, a piece of ground with roads on it that the military had. And they cleaned it all up, and we used it as a racetrack. And um, I was actually in in the, this quote race for the Coca Cola commercial. And um, my bike the, that I rode in some of the shots had a camera on it. Sometimes it didn't. Sometimes I was like the racer. Other times, for other parts of the shot, I was actually riding the camera bike. But I did that for nine years um, and appeared in a lot of films. Uh, you know, Batman and Robin, um, Apollo 13. I mean, just a, a string of, of, of movies and a lot of commercials. And did that for basically for nine years. And then at that point, I was um, 59 years old, I think, 60, 58, something like that. And all of a sudden, people weren't calling me because they, they, they didn't want the old guy. They wanted some young hot shoe, you know. Right. And so I started to rent my bikes out to, to, to other people to ride. And I never rode after that. That was the last time. I think it was uh, 1999, middle of 99 would have been the last time I actually did any stunt work. And is that it for movies at that point for you? Um, yes, it was because I had a street accident. Um in December of 1999 and broke up uh, up in Latigo Canyon and broke my right leg in four places. It was a pretty nasty sight and I was off work for almost a year. In fact, it was cl very close to a year before I could do anything and um, that changed my life a lot because um, I, I, most of the time other than when I was doing uh, the the work to get my muscles back, um, the rehabilitation work, I was literally at home on the couch. Mm. And um, it allowed me to think a lot, to write a lot, and to evaluate what I was doing. And then um, four years later, I got prostate cancer. Oh. And um, that changed my life forever. And um, uh, I have a documentary I produced called Surviving Prostate Cancer Without Surgery, Drugs, or Radiation uh, that was on PBS about five years ago now. And I've just recently completed a book called Prostate Cancer, Why We Get It, What to Do About It, which will be out shortly. It's finished and tied sitting in a warehouse. But 
with this coronavirus changing the the face of the way things are done, there's no personal appearances I can make, so we're reevaluating the, um, the the way we do things on the internet to release the book, you know. But um, that has become a major thing. We started a, a, a foundation called Healing Arts Education Foundation to educate men on all that's available to them when they get diagnosed. And I do personal consultations uh, frequently with men that call me up and say, I've just been diagnosed and here's my numbers and blah, blah, you know, and, and we, I have consultations with them. And that's become a major part of my life. And in fact, in the, the recent trips that I did around the world in different countries came out of my studying of um, why we get cancer and how we recover from it. And one of the big things I learned was that people that have a purposeful life or having a purpose in their life live longer and healthier than people that don't. Mm, say that again. Yeah. People that live a purposeful life or have a real purpose in their life, if, 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 irrespective of the cancer, but if, even more so with cancer, live a longer, healthier life than people that don't have any purpose in their life. And so with that in mind, I started to think, okay, what can I do? You know, what, what is it? And I, that's when I came back to motorcycling again. And uh, not that I'd ever really left, but I came back to it big time and started to put together what I thought would be a purposeful life for someone of my interest. And I made a list of countries that I'd either never been to before or I'd never ridden a motorcycle around before. And um, I started out by going to Taiwan and uh, riding with the Grand Riders. And uh, in all in all, I did 12 countries and uh, the adventures I had were really quite remarkable. And out of it, I mean, I know there's a lot of guys that listen to your station. They learned this way before I did about it. But the, the whole thing was everybody I met, no exception. When you're on a motorcycle, it was like you were welcome. And they were intrigued. You know, they, they were you know, about your bike, about you, what you're doing and so on. And I, I, it's marvelous. I mean, I encourage as many people as I can leave the car at home, go ride the bike. I don't care if you go to Ecuador or, or, or wherever you go, or whether you go to Texas or Arizona or where it is, take the bike, you'll you'll have a much better time. <laughs> and um, I've become quite a, an advocate for motorcycle touring. And it doesn't have to be riding across the Sahara Desert or doing the things that I know some of your audience do or would like to do, um, because a lot of us, and certainly people of my age, do not have that ability anymore. It's okay when you're in your 30s or 40s even, but in your 70s, you don't have those kind of options so much anymore. So, But you do have an option to go out and ride, and you do have an option to go to places you've never been before, and you do have an option to meet people that you normally wouldn't meet in your lifetime. And you'll come away with friends that you you never thought was possible. It, I think it's quite, quite a remarkable thing, and that's why I did the 12 countries that I did. And as I got into the different countries and got into the, as I got deeper and deeper over the six year period, it got more and more obvious to me that this was living a purposeful life for somebody like me. And I'm sure there's a lot of other people out there, you know, the same way. You've become an adventure rider. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, the, the term adventure motorcycling is so broad. It really is. It covers everything. And we have we've had people on this show who have ridden sport bikes around the world, um, scooters around the world. There's just so many people riding just anything. And it's not about the bike. It's not about what ride you have, what wheels you have. It's about the experience of, of doing something. 
Yeah. I, when I was in, for instance, I went to, to Thailand and I rode a 1,000cc um, a, a Ninja. And most of what we rode in Thailand, not all of it, but a good chunk of it was on dirt roads because I wanted to to meet people that were off the beaten path, if you like, as well as people that were on the regular road. They're beautiful roads in Thailand. But if you've ever ridden a 1,000cc Ninja down a dirt road, it's a challenge. Mm. It, it was a hell of a challenge. And uh, But it was at the end was a village that we were visiting, and it was well worth it because I could never have experienced what this village offered in, in the way of hospitality, and uh, it would never have happened otherwise if I hadn't taken that dirt road. And um, even on a, on a 1,000cc Ninja. And on the, 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 the other side of that story was the, um, the weekend I was in Thailand, they were holding the World Superbike Race at Buriram. And um, this is back where I, the kind of racing I used to do in the 60s, it was the, the, what they do now is an evolution of that. And I went in there and uh, spent an afternoon with Jonathan Ray, who was then the three-time world champion, now he's a five-time world champion, um, and spent a wonderful afternoon with this guy who was obviously, you know, 50 years younger than me. Um, but it was it was a great part of the experience. Now, I wouldn't have been allowed in that place. In a, you know, I couldn't have got through the front gate in a car. You know, it was mm -hmm. the motorcycling that was the introduction, even though I'd never met him before. I said, I'm going to go meet this guy. And I made, I talked to various people at the track and, uh, and, I, and I got through and on the practice day, which is on the Friday, I think it was, maybe it's Thursday afternoon. You know, we spent an afternoon chit chatting. I was following him around, sitting in the pits and we did a little bit of a video interview and did a lot of stills. And, um, and so that's another part where in Thailand, if I'd have been on a bus tour or in a car, it would never have happened. So go motorcycle, you know? <laughs> so. I'm looking at a photograph right now of you sitting on that bike um, and the, the tires are dirty. You can see you've been riding through dirt and you've got um, three elephants behind you. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's that's a story in itself. The um, I, I, I like elephants. I mean, I, I've always found them fascinating. And there's an elephant village in um, about 60 kilometers east of Buriram and... Uh, I went there and I spent a couple of hours in what they call the village itself, which is pretty much a tourist thing. And I, I said, well, I, you know, isn't there somewhere I can go and see them in a more rural lifestyle area? And they said, well, if you, if you, if you go now, you'll catch them bathing in the river. And so I, I got on the bike, rode down there. And what I found was between where the elephants were in the river and where I was on the road was about 200 yards of muddy field which is okay if you're on an elephant, not so good if you're on a Kawasaki ninja. But I was desperate for this photograph. I had this photograph in my mind, and I was desperate for the photograph. And so I wrote it. And that's why you see this dirt all around the wheels. And um, uh, in fact, several people said, how come you got dirt around there? I said, because there was a bloody wet field between me and the road, you know. <laughs> and, I, and I only had so much time because there, it was at the end of the bathing and um, I had to, I had a, a, a Thai person that was sort of uh, coming with me, so the, he could talk to the people that um, were in charge of the elephants, and he actually set up the, that it was okay to do this. And uh, I rode down, I put the, the camera on top of the tripod, uh, got back on the bike, and, um, and the elephants came around me, and I remotely uh, hit the, the, the button on the camera, and that's what you got. 
you said that I think it was 2004, you were diagnosed with prostate cancer and somewhere along the line, you've, you've come up with this thing about finding your, your life purpose. How much time are you talking between your, your diagnosis of the prostate cancer and your sort of discovery and, and looking into motorcycle travel? About eight or nine years. Hard to put a... I, I got into the, the whole... Uh, reading a lot about loving, having a purposeful life. I read an awful lot in that, that era. But it wasn't perhaps until eight years ago, maybe, that I actually realized that all of the other things that I was that I was thinking about was more religious, having a purpose in your life. It was more uh, looking down the spiritual religious avenues. And then all of a sudden I realized that when you look back at my life, what's the central theme for the entire life? It wasn't rock and roll. It wasn't disc jockeying. It was motorcycling. Mm-hmm. And that's how, the, and, and over a period of time, that's how it came about. And uh, But why uh, motorcycle went, with travel? How, how do you get travel in there? Like, what does that bring well, to you? Because I can't, I can't race anymore. I, I can't, I just, it, it's, you know, it would be dangerous for me to get out there and try to, to, to race and be involved in that thing. And I just always thought traveling was a good idea. I just hadn't done it. And so, you know, and it was, it was a thought process that didn't happen overnight. And all, and the reason it, it went the way it went, quite honestly, was um, I saw this video on the internet about the Grand Riders in Taiwan. Yeah. But it's a three-minute... It's, it's, three it's actually circulated. Let me just interrupt. Sorry, Peter. That, that's yeah. circulated on the internet. Um, you, you see it on YouTube. And yes. it's, it's, it's by a bank. Right. And I saw that on, uh, on the YouTube. And I literally cried. I had a lump in my throat and I cried because everything they were putting forward, this, this guy had cancer, the guy had uh, heart disease and blah, blah, blah. Well, and I'm give, going, the, give the movie out. Lay the movie out. Oh, well, the, the, the story is about um, these guys that were old. In fact, the average age was 82. Uh, and they, were, they, they, they went from like 75 to 93 in age. And um, at a certain point, they basically said, you know, we're at the end of our lives. We've, we're all got uh, diseases we're going to die from. Let's do something that when, that we have never done before. And it happened to be riding a motorcycle around their island. And then, even though they were at that eight grand age, they'd never been around their own island in Taiwan. Wow. And so they said, okay, we're going to do that. And they did. And in the, the film that's on YouTube is actually actors. And funnily enough, it was shot in Malaysia. Which is uh, something, it's just a film thing. I mean, I wondered about that. So they made the movie about the actual trip, but it wasn't done at the same time, right? Correct. That commercial, that three minute bank commercial uh, by Taipei Bank, was actually about the 17 riders that originally did it. Uh, but, of course, they cut it down to five or six, I think, and uh, and they created the story. It's just that the story is true. It's just that they put actors in there and they condensed it. Mm-hmm. But what they did was true. And I was just so affected emotionally by this that I just said, I've got to go ride with these guys. And I called up a couple of people in the industry, like Brian Catterson, who was then at Motorcyclist Magazine. I shared my thoughts. And, and he said, well, do it. He said, um, you know, we'll we'll publish it for you. And as an article, and that's what kicked off the whole thing. And I called the the uh, Taiwanese Tourist Bureau, and they put me in touch with the bank, who put me in touch with the production company, who put me in touch with the the, the real writers, who were actually being taken care of by a foundation called the Hondao Foundation. Nothing to do with Honda, the motorcycle. Hondao is a Chinese word. And um, I finally got to uh, communicate with the head of the Honda Foundation. And I said, I want to come ride with these guys. And I introduced myself and told them who I was and so on and so forth. And she said, when do you want to come? I said, now. 
I said, I said, they're old. I'm old. <laughs> Who knows? Let's do it now. Right? <laughs> Don't put it off. Yeah, no time. And she, yeah. And she, she said, well, you know, the weather here is really bad. It was in the middle of summer and it's very humid and hot there in the summer. She says, if you can wait till October, it would be much, much better. I said, okay, I think I can wait that one. This was like July. And, um, so in uh, in October, uh, about the second week in October, I flew to Taiwan. I borrowed a seven hundred cc scooter from Kimco, and actually rode with these guys. And um, we did a ride, and I, I was having a wonderful time. And I actually stayed an extra week after the ride was over, and traveled around Taiwan myself um, on the seven hundred cc scooter. And to tell you that, to echo what I've said before about meeting people. We're in Taichung, and the charity was having a fundraising event that evening, which I was invited to, and it happened to be my birthday. And they just made this huge production for me because it was my birthday at this fundraising event, and my heart was out of my sleeve. I mean, it was just far too much. But the next day, I found nine people at my hotel wanted to come ride with me. And so for the next three days... Uh, these nine guys, some on Harley, some on BMWs, a couple of Triumphs, rode with me and showed me around Taiwan. And I mean, it, that wouldn't have happened on a tour bus or in a car or whatever. It just wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. So it, again, it's it's the vehicle that attracts the kind of people that will do that for you. And that set my course in effect to say, I've got to do more of this. And so after Taiwan, you know, I just made a list of countries I wanted to go to and and what I wanted to see and, and laid it out in, at the rate of two a year, just did it for the next six years. You know, a lot of people ask about this when it comes to travel, motorcycle travel. They talk about, well, how do you do it? How do you how do you make your plan, et cetera? How do you prepare yourself? And it's interesting that the, the style of travel that you've chosen here, you've mentioned about borrowing a motorcycle from Kimco, and it looks like you, you borrowed this Kawasaki as well, the, the, the 1000 in Thailand. Talk about how you plan it and, and what you plan to do. Well, I, I must say that I've been very fortunate because in the years that I was making films, I made over 40 films about motorcycle racing. So I had met a lot of people in the motorcycle industry and I was no, I was a known entity, a known quantity. And so I would start out saying, okay, I want to go to Poland as an example. And um, uh, I looked at, uh, at where all, I had all the countries listed out and I said, well, let's see what bikes we can get for that. And I called the manufacturers. Uh, here and most of whom were in California, of course, and told them what I was doing and said, look, I'm going to New Zealand. I liked this bike for New Zealand. And then I'd call Honda up and our Yamaha or whomever and told them what I was doing. And they were all very helpful in making the communication to their local distributor in the country where I was going so that the bike was provided by the local distributor. And uh, I was very fortunate. And that's sort of playing the card that I had because I knew these people from making all the films I did. Mm. And they knew they were going to get some mileage out of it uh, press-wise. Nobody knew that I was going to write a book about it. These were just articles that I would write. And uh, very much like a lot of other uh, motorcycle travelers do. But I was a known entity. So that made that part easy, to be quite honest. I mean, uh, if I had to ship my bike around the world to these these countries wouldn't have been impossible but it would have added an extra layer of issues that i would have to deal with that i didn't have to deal with by 
being Peter Starr, if you like, and knowing these people. Mm. Yeah, and, and expense as well. But I mean, the average person can do it anyway just by renting because you can always rent a bike and there's different uh, services on the internet for loaning bikes and, and private rentals and things like that. What about when it comes to figuring out what you want to see? You mentioned you made a list, list of things you wanted to see. Um, well, first of all, I made a list of countries that I thought I could deal with. And um, and once I made that list, I said, okay, what's in that country that I want to see? And it varied so much. For instance, when I went to Finland, I had two friends in Finland. Well, I couldn't call them friends. People I knew in Finland that I hadn't seen in many years. Uh, Tepi Lansiburi, who was a Grand Prix motorcycle racer that I knew from the 70s. I hadn't seen him in a long, long time. And he lives up in the hinterland in Finland, quite a ways out from the from uh, El Sami is the name of the town. It's quite a ride to get up there. And then and Heike Mikola, who is a world champion motocross racer. Again, I hadn't seen since the 70s. And so I mapped around Finland I was going to fly into Helsinki, that much I knew. And I mapped everything else around going to Osami, going to where Heike lived, and then looked at what was available to me within the time period to go see. And that's how I did Finland. In um, Poland, uh, for instance, I knew I wanted to go to, uh, uh, to um, Auschwitz, and I know I wanted to go to other places that are World War II-like. And uh, there were towns like Tarun that had amazing architecture, and, and, a, and an incredible history. And I had a friend uh, in Poland called Zed Zawada. And uh, Zed kindly took the time out uh, and came with me because I don't speak Polish. And so uh, that was very, very helpful, having a friend there to take me around. And uh, and it opened a lot of doors once we got there. And, and it, Poland became a history ride. Um, Israel, the same thing. It became a history ride. What What is there in, in Israel to look at? I mean, there's desert and stuff like that, but it's the history of Israel I was interested in and um, the ability to see for myself what it was really like to be, you know, uh, 1,400 feet below sea level and one one morning and then 800 feet above sea level in that afternoon and things like that. Um, New Zealand was fairly straightforward. Uh, I wanted to go to the South Island um, and look at the albatross and, uh, and go whale watching and things like that, which, you know, you park the bike and you go do those things. And I went to, I rode the shot over. I became a tourist in some countries like New Zealand. Others, there was more of a, a social thing. Like Taiwan was definitely a social thing. Uh, it was, it really dragged some emotion out of me. Still does to this day when I think about it. When I think of those people, uh, I still get uh, a lump in my throat. And I look at some photographs sometimes of uh, some of the people I met there. And it's uh, very, very touching. Uh, and there's other countries, to be quite honest, that I was sort of disappointed in because it, it didn't live up to the, the expectation that I had. But that's part and parcel of you going to do it, you know. Yours or the, or the hype that you've read? Hype, both, because I'd, I'd read the hype and I'd absorbed it. Mm. So, I, so I expected different things. And, um, uh, you know, I did a thing on Canada. Well, people say, well, you know, Canada is just up north. And yeah, it's true, but uh, Quebec is different. You're as close to France in Quebec as anywhere else you can possibly be. And uh, I still speak a little French, not very much, uh, but it was a language that I learned in school. And I found that people in Quebec, if you tried to speak French, just give it a try. They welcome you. And they can speak English. They know exactly what it's about. But it's the effort of trying that opens the door to their heart and then they take you in. So even though you might make a total pig's ear of what you're trying to say to them, 
you know, they will nonetheless welcome you and, and uh, because you've tried. And I did this. It was the same thing in different languages when I went to. Um, Israel is very different, but everybody in Israel speaks English pretty much anyway. But uh, some of the other places like Ecuador, I don't speak Spanish. But again, if you try, you have your phrase book and you look at the phrases and you try to, to say something you want and they respond. And that was a good lesson for me to learn is if you put out and you try, people respond and they take you in um, emotionally and, and practically as well. I mean, they'll help you. Did you find it as you finished each trip, you said it went over, I think, six years is what you said, um, doing all these different trips. Did you find at the end of each one you came out with a, like it sort of morphed your feeling for motorcycle travel? Did it sort of change and develop as you went or was it the same? I think after the Taiwan trip, it was pretty much the same. Taiwan changed my total attitude in so many ways um, because it was I didn't expect anything out of Taiwan, and yet it provided so much. I mean, I went there having seen this three-minute video of these guys with a desire to ride with them because I emotionally connected with the fact they'd had cancer. They were cancer survivors or cancer recovery, and they had, you know, congested heart failure and all of these diseases that we get as we get older. And I, I felt that and because that was me. I was I was a cancer survivor. And um, and, and you're, you're always a survivor, whether you still have the cancer or not. You're, that's still in the back of your mind. And so when I met these people, I spoke no Chinese. Fortunately, the people that were in, in charge of the foundation uh, there that took care of them spoke English. And I was never without anybody that didn't speak English, so that made it easy. But we would have meetings and talk, and, and it was just at the most amazing human experience uh, of a communication I'll never forget. Why did they have a foundation looking after them? What does that mean? Um, well, in Taiwan, they have a very different system of taking care of old people. Um, first of all, they they honor the wisdom of the old. And uh, if you get old in Taiwan and you're on your own, you're never really on your own. They take you in and they have homes set up around Taiwan, many of which are run by this Honda Foundation. Um, and they take care of old people. Um, I was so touched at the end of the ride in um, 2011 that I said, I'm going to bring some Americans back next year and we're going to do this again. And I did. I went back with 10 Americans and we rode. And this one of the sponsors for this Honda Foundation and for these grand riders was the Japan Tobacco Company, JTI. And they put in un untold amounts of money every year into this program to take care of these old people. And they actually had a film crew follow us 10 Americans around for our ride and oh. put together a 20-minute film about it. And in that film, we actually visited uh, one of the, uh, the old people's homes. And I mean, if you, you can't come out of that place without tears in your eyes. It's just the way it is. And you go, what are we doing in this country, in America, that's wrong? Well, these people over there with, with a fraction of our resources are doing right. I think some of the arguments that you'll hear from younger people about older people is that what what could they actually teach me because they're so far out of touch with the way things are now? Well, if you think of it, of, of the, if you're out of touch because you don't know how to use an iPhone, you're right. But is your world an iPhone? Is it what humanity about? Is it an iPhone? I don't think mm -hmm. so. I mean, um, what would you do if we took the iPhone away? 
I mean, what, what, for instance, if there was a civil war or there was a catastrophe and there was no more iPhones? Mm-hmm. You know, you still got this this need to deal with who we are as human beings. And I learned so much about that from these people in Taiwan. And uh, I've tried ever since to talk to people about it. Some people listen. Most don't, to be quite honest. Well, um, well, that's what wisdom is, isn't it? Wisdom is not mm-hmm. knowledge of operating equipment or, or understand that. Wisdom is the, be able, the ability to see things with a, a broader perspective, to be able to understand things in a larger way. That, that's what you get when you get older. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's quite honestly, the way the world is being run sometimes, uh, a little more wisdom and a, a little less knowledge even perhaps will go a long way, you know, <laughs> Is, is this all like you said that you know this is this is a part of the life purpose thing that you've done? You've done these trips and you've written a book, which I want to talk to you about as well. Is it over now? As as far as that goes, your travel? Uh, no, uh, no, it's not. It's only over temporarily. Um, you know, temporarily because of the coronavirus and also the fact that I mentioned early on that I'm actually recovering from a kidney failure I had back in December, and that's still in recovery mode at least for uh, the next month or two. Then I'm told everything will be okay. Um, I was very, very fortunate, very lucky that I had the doctors that I had for that. Um, but no, it's not over at all, and nor should it be. Uh, it just it might change, but it's not over. You know. You um you end up putting a book together called Motorcycle Traveler about the the adventure that you had, and you put a you put a DVD in there too, which I think is kind of unusual for books nowadays. Well, I did it with my first book. Uh, my first book is it was also a coffee table book, and it was called um, Taking It to the Limit, 20 Years of Making Motorcycle Movies. And I put a DVD in there with some film clips in it as a way to um, be a, a companion, if you like, to the text in the book. And I thought, well, I like this idea, even with Motorcycle Traveler, to put some experiences on film or on video that might expand what people are reading in the book. And that's why I did it with this book as well. Mm. And some, some of it is um, it was provided to me by local tourist authorities because I didn't plan on doing it. I didn't plan on making a film. I didn't plan on doing even making a book in the beginning. So I got stuff to, uh, to put in it um, just mainly to assist people to understand a little, you know, from a different perspective what was going on in the book. Um, like Taiwan, as an example, you know, they, uh, for people that have never seen that the three minute film on the internet, it's on the DVD, as is the 20 minute film that they made about us Americans going to Taiwan uh, in 2012. Um, and, you know, a piece about Ecuador, uh, when, uh, stuff that I picked up along the way sometimes, and sometimes, um, uh, like the Isle of Man, uh, Arai Helmets has one of been one of my sponsors for many years. And they made a film about the Isle of Man TT, which was done from a very different perspective. So I put that in there as well, because part of the story was going to the Isle of Man with Stevie Baker. Um, it was uh, an adjunct to my trip to Wales. I did Wales and the Isle of Man. And um, so there's a there's a piece of film for that. And uh, I just wanted to enhance, really, the experience of reading the book, you know. Mm, yeah, and it did. I mean, I, I I was surprised. I was I didn't know what to expect when I when I put it in the, the player, and uh, I was sort of thinking that I'm going to be looking at some pictures and things like that. But I was pleasantly surprised to see that it's it's a full production that you've done there. It's almost like you're getting a a movie with the book. The book, by the way, you mentioned it's a coffee table book. It's a beautiful book. Loads of photographs um, of of your travels in there, and and some great stories. You managed to find a way to to highlight the places that you visited in there. 
was one you you, you took a trip to um, to Ecuador, and you had a little incident there. Can you tell that story? <laughs> 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 yes, uh, it, it's laughable now. At the time, it was scary, but it needn't have been scary. It's just the way that it went down. Um, I was riding with a guy called Court Rand, who um, uh, runs a, a, a tour company down in Ecuador, and he speaks uh, pretty fluent Spanish. And we've been riding for the better part of, I think, seven days at that point. And uh, we're up in, in, in the mountains. We're probably up at about 10,000 feet. And um, we're riding on this road and we're just cruising. We're in no hurry. I'm riding a, a 650 Suzuki V-Strom and I forget what he was on now. I can't remember, but it's in the book somewhere. And he's in front of me by maybe, I don't know, 30 yards perhaps. And we're cruising and we're at the, uh, there's a bus stop probably half a mile down the road. And there's a bunch of indigenous people standing around the bus stop and, um, we're just trucking down the road. And I, I guess we'd say about 50, 55. And at the last minute, this woman jumps out into the road to cross the road. And if she'd have continued across, probably nothing would have happened. Court hit the brakes, left skid marks. But she, she heard the motorcycle coming, stopped in the middle of the road, turned around, looked at the motorcycle, just at the point of impact. And she went flying up in the air and landed on the road. And Court, fortunately, is um, is trained in first aid. The first thing he did was, you know, park the bike, run back and take care of her. And um, But it wasn't long before the Federales came. Now, now, let me interrupt here, Peter, because in the book, you do mention the fact that usually with this sort of thing, well, maybe, maybe you should tell it, but usually this sort of thing, you would have a different response. Well, you're told in a lot of areas, if something goes wrong, just get the hell out of there. Because they have a, they have different laws and different systems uh, high up in the mountains than they do, for instance, in Quito or Cuenca, you know, the towns. And they have a different legal system entirely. And um, that's normally what you're told to do. Because they, they could mob and, and take the take the law into their own oh, hands sort of thing. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, uh, but court didn't do that. His first responsibility was to the woman. And um, he went back and he administered first aid. And then uh, court's father came up. Um, he was following us uh, in a pickup truck. And, uh, you know, sometimes an hour behind, sometimes two hours behind, but he would, uh, he would follow us. And he came actually within about 20 minutes, as it turned out. And they were putting her in the truck to take her back to uh, a lousy to the hospital. And um, along came the federales. And one of the federales went to the hospital with uh, court. They put her in the hospital in, in Lousy and then um, came back with court. And then they arrested him. And uh, they took his bike and they impounded his bike. We went, we went to the police station. And they were the friendliest of, of federales. I mean, you hear these stories about don't piss off the federal police. But <laughs> these guys were so nice. And they posed for pictures and we talked. And then they took court to jail. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> Just took, took him to jail. And, and the bottom line, he was in jail overnight. We got him out the next day. But uh, the, the deal was that it was, it was how much money is going to be paid to the family of the person that was hit. That was the key thing. Um, there, there was there was no trial per se. It was well, like, how much, how much are we going to pay them? Well, fortunately, court had insurance. 
and the insurance, insurance company took care of it. But the, the actual court hearing the next day, uh, court meaning the legal court hearing for court brand the rider, um, it was, it was. It had nothing very much to do with who's in the right or who, who's in the wrong. I mean, it's very hard to avoid somebody that runs suddenly under the middle of the road, mm-hmm. and um, and it was very unfortunate. Uh, but it had nothing to do with that. What it had to do with is how much you're going to pay the family. Well, well, is the thought process that because you're riding a motorcycle, because you're on a powered vehicle, that you're at fault no matter what? Uh, I don't think fault was even an issue at the time. It was. It's just that the member of the local indigenous people was hurt. How much are you going to pay to, to, to make it right? Well, why uh, not the other way around then? Why not saying, look, you, you messed up my motorcycle. How much are you going to pay me? I mean, you know what I mean? I don't know the answer to that, to be quite honest. Uh, I don't know how that would have gone down, but <laughs> we were quite honestly getting caught out of jail the next day and getting out of there was a big deal. And the police still impounded his bike and kept his bike for over a month. Oh, wow. Uh, so he had to uh, he had to go back there and pick up the bike a month later. And it was... Um, uh, that's just the, the, and the reason they kept the bike, as I understand it, uh, was that they wanted to make sure that the insurance company paid the claim before they gave him the bike back. Really, wow! And, uh, and he's not even really at fault. Correct. That's that fault, fault. Fault wasn't it? It wasn't the question. That's the other thing that surprised me. It wasn't trying to decide who's at fault and therefore, therefore, it was like how much you're going to pay the family. What if it was you? What if you were in front? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, because Court speaks Spanish, right? Yes, he spoke Spanish, and and unfortunately, he was trained in first aid, and he did the right thing. Morally, yeah. he did. Morally, he did the right thing. He stopped and took care of the woman. Sure. I mean that that's that's that was the thing to do, and um, and the police, the federales, understood all of this. They understood a lot more than they were letting on. They were just having to do certain things, but they did it. With a sense of humor, if you like. I mean, we're standing outside of the police station and having pictures taken and they were laughing and joking and and, and so on. And you wouldn't think anything could had happened that was wrong. And then after that, we'd, after we had dinner, we had dinner with them. After we did that, <laughs> they put him in the back of the truck and took him to jail. <laughs> you, know, so. you went out, you had dinner with these guys and yeah. then they still take him to jail. That must have yeah. been a bit of a shock. Well, they had their job to do and they were going to do it. They just weren't doing it with any malice, you know? Wow. It's, uh, and so that's that's one of the experiences that um, no matter what, I find if you treat people the way you want to be treated, nine times out of ten, they look at you and treat you differently. And, they, and it's a better experience for everybody. Is that what you took out of that? Do you come out with any sort of feeling, any, any concern um, with motorcycle travel when you run in and you see something like that? Yeah, buy insurance. I mean, make sure you, <laughs> seriously, make sure you got insurance because that will, that will resolve most things mm-hmm. and, and, and be human about it. Be, uh, I mean, as court was, instead of running, like, you know, you basically you tell people to do, get the hell out of there. He stopped and took care of the woman. That was the morally the right thing to do. And he did it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think people respond to that. They, they saw that. And, um, I think that, but he's still, the law of the Andes, the, the 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 indigenous peoples up at that altitude was, how much are you going to give us? You know, that's just the way the way it was, and you have to take care of that one way or another. You know, Peter, it was great to sit down and talk with you. I, we, there's so much more I want to talk to you about, but uh, you know, we we have to stop somewhere. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you very much. 
Well, I hope we'll do it again. And thank you for the time you've taken to uh, to read the book and to um, to call me and, and have a chance to chat with you. It's been it's been lovely. And may I also say that you, since you live in God's country up there, uh, I lived in Vancouver for four years. And um, it, when I live down here in L.A., I'm quite envious of the countryside you've got up there in uh, in British Columbia. Mm, yes, it's it's beautiful and no doubt. Jim, thanks so much. Peter Starr from his home in California. Now, drop by our website, look at the show notes for this episode. We have that video in there that Peter talked about, made by the bank in Taiwan of um, the old Taiwanese men who were sort of fed up with sitting around and dealing with their health issues. Some were life-threatening and missing their spouses, and, and they decided to hit the road. They decided to get on their motorcycles and do, and do a trip. And as Peter said, it was the impetus for him to start to travel by motorcycle. Um, it's a really inspiring little uh, film. It's, it's just an ad that they made up, but it's really inspiring. Anyway, we have that on the website in the show notes. And as Peter said, it was the impetus for him to get out there and travel. We also have some photographs and a link to Peter's book called Motorcycle Traveler. It's a beautiful book, coffee table style, in which he covers 12 countries over six years. He's a really interesting guy. You can buy his book direct at his website, motodvd.com. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Peter was a a really interesting guy to talk with. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin and to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. Hey, we need your support. Now, um, this is built on a model of some advertising and listener support. We really need your support. There's some benefits in there. Drop by our website, AdventureRiderRadio.com. Click on the support button. And don't forget, we have another show out called ARR Raw that comes out once a month. It's Roundtable Talks. Um, We have a lot of fun with a group of us who meet there every month. We've been doing it for, I think, over four years now. Um, Incidentally, we've been doing Adventure Rider Radio for six years now. I think just coming up on on six years. It's been a long time. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Talk to you next week. This is Charlie Borman and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.